You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. In 2010, Almas founded the African Diaspora Network, ADN, to inform and engage Africans in the diaspora and facilitate direct collaboration with social entrepreneurs, innovators, and business leaders to invest and improve the lives of everyone on the continent. Under her leadership and vision, ADN is now the home of the African Diaspora Investment Symposium, the Builders of Africa Futures, and Impact and Innovation Speaker Series. Currently, she is pursuing the development of African Impact Investment Fund to provide capital to those working to better the lives of people in Africa through entrepreneurship and innovation. On today's show, we talk about what is the African Diaspora Network ADN's mission? What resources are African-founded startups needing, missing, lacking, seeking? What are some of the positive and negatives of remittances? And how does one go about recruiting an amazing board? This much more on today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. All right, now let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, so I'm very excited here today on the Silicon Valley Podcast. I met today's guest through an event that her organization, the African Diaspora Network, co-hosted with SMENG, which is an organization that Thelma Ekior, who is a past guest, is a founder. So it was a collaboration effort, and I met some amazing people there. They're doing some amazing things, but let's just go right into the interview with Almas. Can you tell us a little bit about your career up until this point? Wow. Thank you so much, Sean, for having me. So my career, I think to know about my career, it's better that you know how I got to come to the United States. I'm an immigrant and I am proud of being an immigrant and contributing to the economy of the United States and continue to have that connection with my home continent and home country. I'm uh, originally from Eritrea, Northeast Africa, and I came to the United States as a foreign student many, many years ago and went to University of San Francisco. I got a job at an investment banking in San Francisco, Volpe Wealthy. I was uh, right down by the financial district. My first experience, pretty hard job, but it was one, an eye-opener, and I learned a lot about hard work and um, tenacity and to understand the system. But my background was in international business and trade. And right after that, actually, a very good friend of mine invited me to come and join him to run the Bay Area World Trade Center so that we could do import and export, which is what we've done in the past. So it was fun to go back and work with a friend of mine, Peter Yap, wherever he is. I just love that guy. We've been friends since 1991. And I worked at uh, the Bay Area World Trade Center as uh, I reached from manager to business development director, international business development director. And then in 1999, I got another directorship position to run the Center for International Trade Development. So you can see I'm really going into the international trade where I help small and medium-sized companies to export and import from the Bay Area, California, although throughout the world. And it has been a fantastic opportunity because I always thought that trade can make the world a better place. So that's my first part of about 10 to 12 years. I was all in the international trade. And then in 2003, I was asked by a friend at Santa Clara University if I was interested 
in uh, running a new program and developing a new program, which is really what I love to do at the core. I love developing and innovating new programs and get them and give them life. I was asked if I would be interested to move from the trade, the international trade space to the higher education. And I think I was ready because my kids were by then growing up and I didn't want to do a lot of traveling. Uh, They were, I think, in the seven, 10 year old time. And I said, yeah, maybe this is a good opportunity. So I went to work for the Marcola Center for Applied Ethics. I was the uh, director of the Global Leadership and Ethics, where we worked with former heads of states on issues of uh, education, HIV, AIDS. It's mostly about activating former heads of states to do good in the world so that they can use their voice to make a difference in the world. It was complex project or work, but I think it was a very, very useful one. In fact, it opened my eyes to know that, I know, Sean, this sounds really crazy, but I honestly didn't know there was poverty in Silicon Valley until 2005 when I read uh, a document that specified about 25% of Silicon Valley community cannot make ends meet or they were really living on below the federal poverty line. And that really just like demystified for me what it means to have that whole inequity that we are now talking about. This for me was just not revealed at the time. And, and it makes sense because when you are an immigrant like me, you come with no generational wealth. So my husband and I, we both are from the same country. We both came as foreign students. He came to Drexel. I came to USF. And then after you finish your school, all you do is try to create an economic development for yourself. So you're pretty much immersed in your own life. We've done that. And it was just at, uh, at that point in my life when I said, wow, this poverty is not just only in Africa, where I come from, in the continent where I come from, but actually this is also in existence here in the United States, but right here in Silicon Valley, one of the richest regions in the world. That just didn't make sense to me. And unfortunately, it still doesn't make sense to me because that gap continues. And I know that it means a lot to all of us who care about this community. Such inequity doesn't serve to the healthy ecosystem that we thrive to have in the Valley and then around the, around the United States. So I think it, it was a great transfer to transition for me. And then in 2007, I moved out. As a fellow from the Marcola Center, I became a fellow on on the ethics of immigration and migration, another very complex opportunity but and subject. But it also opened up my eyes again to the plight of immigrants around the world, and especially in the United States. I wanted to really people know that immigrants are not a burden to any country they go to. Immigrants are the source of economic development to any countries they go to. And so I'm very, very much living on their shoulder and trying to carry it forward and be the voice of those who might not have the voice. But I do want to make sure that immigrants' rights are protected and also that we are known as a source of uh, value to wherever we go and not necessarily a burden. And so that was a a wonderful opportunity. And uh, eventually, I ended up being very interested in social innovation using my business background, I have MBA, so I use my business acumen to make a difference in the community. So I became very interested in the social entrepreneurship side of life, uh, really social innovation versus just having 
to work in a private sector, make money and all that things that go, which is all good, all good. But for me, this is where my heart is and where my mind is. And since then, I've developed programs for women economic development opportunities in the Valley. I worked for eight years, ran Step Up Silicon Valley, which is a social innovation network that helps to use innovative ways to reduce poverty in Silicon Valley. At the same time, I was running ADN, but then I can talk to you about that. So that just gives you a little bit of a a path to how I got to be where I am. I'm sure it's much more than that, but hopefully this will give you some idea. There's a lot that you said there that is really interesting, especially for people outside of Silicon Valley. I mean, for people that haven't been here, the number of tent cities have grown quite a bit over the years. I've only been here since 2013, and I've seen a dramatic increase, especially when I'm driving on the freeways. I'll I'll look over on the sides, and it is growing. It is definitely a concern that I think people outside Silicon Valley, I think everyone here drives Teslas. Everyone here has a $5 million mansion or, or whatever, but the reality is there is a huge gap in Silicon Valley. With that, I kind of want to find out, I mean, maybe let's save that issue for another day, but let's talk more about the African Diaspora Network. What's the mission behind it? What are some of the goals? I lived, as I said, you saw my career. So I had great opportunity and access to many different organizations, corporations, and foundations. And everywhere I go, wherever people spoke about Africa, Africans were not present. And that didn't sit well with me. So in 2010, I assembled a group of friends and I asked, you know, this is not a way to go. What do you think if we were to create something that will enable us to invite people so we don't wait to be invited? Because this is the other thing is I became a pain to many people by just always complaining. I felt like a complainer because I'm asking Why don't you invite Africans? Why don't you have African board members? Why don't you have it? Because if you're talking about Africa, how can you do this without having Africans at the table? And these are my really good friends. And they happen to be white Americans with great mission. But I think they forgot to really involve the very people that they want to make a difference uh, in. And so I, uh, it didn't really sit well for, for me. So I just thought, okay. Let's go ahead and see if we can invite people rather than waiting to be invited. And I'm telling you, I'm smiling right now. It worked. At the beginning, people thought this is a crazy idea. But the mission is this. We want to bring Africans and Friends of Africa together to co-create, co-imagine possibilities, not only for Africa, but as I said earlier, even for the communities in which we live, whether it's Silicon Valley or whether it's Washington, D.C., or whether it's somewhere in London. I really believe that you and I have a much better opportunity. If we sit at a table, we meet somewhere and we discuss ways to better our lives, our family's life, our community's life. I don't think it goes any other way. Otherwise, we're just in the silo place where we feel so great about our own achievement and we forget everybody else around us, besides us, in front of us and behind us. So I think it's absolutely critical that we, we really have a different way of imagining what the world can be. And I think at the core to your question, what is the mission? I want to bring people together. I really believe in each of us. I believe in people no matter how hard we are sometimes. I will continue to bet on each other. That's something I am so absolutely adamant about. Not We are not perfect, but we're good people. With that, you had mentioned bringing Africa and the people that want to help together. What are kind of the resources that African-founded startups 
what do they lack and what are they needing? We had that vision, that imagination. And then we said, how do we make this into practice? What is it that we need? What kind of ecosystem do we need to create? So the first program we created was the African Diaspora Investment Symposium with the help of the U.S. State Department. Of all other organizations, we really had an incredible support from the U.S. Department of State, the State Department of the United States, and also USAID. They already had a faith and a belief at that moment. You know, administrations change, but, you know, these programs, sometimes once they get created, if you can really hone on them, you can actually see change happen. So we actually got early on the eyes and the ears and also the funding from the State Department to create the African Diaspora Investment Symposium. We provided our concept note and they liked it. And we started in 2016 was the first African Diaspora Investment Symposium. What was that? We bring people from around the world to Silicon Valley. They come to the Valley and we have different panel sessions that addresses the issues that Africans And also, even the businesses, social entrepreneurs and business entrepreneurs from the United States and other places face when they try to do work with Africa and vice versa. So we have been doing that. It's one of the greatest accomplishments of ADN is developing the African Diaspora Investment Symposium. We are now planning, which sounds crazy, but we're planning the seventh annual African Diaspora Investment Symposium, which will be taking place a hybrid. The last 2021, it took place all virtually. We had seven sessions, but the 2022 will be hybrid six, five months of online virtual event. And then, uh, well, I I don't want to call it event. It's an experience, but the the real experience in person will be in June 2022. What did we learn then, which is to answer your question, what did we learn over the years about what is the need of especially, especially diasporans, Black diasporans like myself and other minorities, including our historical African-American diaspora that have been here and really paving the road for me as a contemporary or as a new immigrant. I am on the back and the shoulder of African-Americans who sacrificed for all of us to be where we are today. And I'm very grateful. I still continue to be humbled by these opportunities, but also there are people who paved the way and I'm very grateful for them. So what did they lack? Funding. Access to funding is fundamentally the greatest challenge Black entrepreneurs face all over the world, especially in the United States. The funding, as you know, venture capital funding in the Silicon Valley is pretty much available, life, uh, you know, and very healthy, but accessing is not equal. So it's almost like, you know, opportunities are there for all of us, but accessing to these opportunities are not equal. And that is what we're trying to address to really close that gap. The other thing that we're trying to address is awareness. Africa is 55 countries large and uh, beautiful and very complex, different from country to country with different political, economic and other issues, but still beautiful and able to provide opportunities for those who want to do business or social relationship with that continent. So we're also trying to amplify the continent, change the the narrative, because there is a very well put together narrative that puts Africa at the bottom of the scale. And I am saying, no, don't do that. Look at it as a continent in its own uh, merit with all its challenge. And we have had our own challenge. We continue to have, but we're still at least we're doing the best. They're doing the best they can. We see that as an opportunity to educate, to engage, to learn, and to 
continue to better ourselves and the communities that we are a part of. Hopefully that gives you some answer and I'd be happy to also elaborate. That gives me more questions than answers. So with the fundraising or the need for fundraising, is that through friends and family? Is that from angels? Is that from VCs? Is that for the whole spectrum? Is there a certain area of that that's missing or is it everything's missing? And also with that, I mean, most people at the very beginning, the first money they get is from friends and family. If they're immigrants, maybe they're lacking that friends and family network here. How does that impact their fundraising, their initial fundraising opportunity? So a lot, if you want to do two parts, go for it. One of the greatest gifts of being an immigrant is the fact that you actually left your home to come. So the risk that you take, the greatest risk that an immigrant takes is leaving your home country, leaving you everything that you've ne- ever known behind for a better life. That in itself makes you a, an entrepreneur at the core. Isn't that what it is? An entrepreneur is really taking a risk. Really by nature, Africans and other immigrants from around the world, I give them credit. I give myself credit too. You know, sometimes I wonder, oh my God, how did I do it? And I don't have a family in the United States. I just came as a foreign student. Was no brother, sister, or anyone. So you have that kind of faith and it's really, really deep and you can either lose or make best out of it. You have nowhere to go but up, to be honest with you, because you don't have anything to begin with. And so that, that's really what it is. So, but here's what we have, say the Ethiopian diaspora or the Eritrean diaspora, what do they have? They have a community. There are community organizations. So ADN is a, as a whole Africa, but imagine the Nigerian diaspora, the Ghanaian diaspora, the Eritrean diaspora. We have something we call, it's a, it's a saving circle or it's a, there are names for it. So you individuals put whatever money they have, whether it's $50, $10 per month, they collect that money and it goes to the person. Here in the U.S., it's a giving circle or a saving circle. I call it a saving circle, and there are names for them. I know in Tigrinya, it's called Ukup, and then in other countries, it's called different. So a lot of people put together, this is based on trust and relationship, and that money then, so let's say, um, Sean, you wanted to start a new business, or you want to buy a home. You could use this as a down payment, or so people have really done very well in the minority community, especially in the immigrant community interview, if you have time, Jeff Ash to interview for this kind of discussion about how immigrants actually really, really thrive wherever they go. And he is the, to me, my mentor and incredible thought leader on this. So we can have him talk to you about this at some point. I think he would be, uh, he would be fascinating to anyone to listen about what he has to say. So that's the beginning of how we raise money. And then you've got other opportunities when you reach to be an entrepreneur ready to go and look for Series A or other VC funding, that gets very, very hard. A lot of people have difficulty to get access to it. If you are a woman, a Black woman, you have even less access, uh, opportunity to access them. But to your question, how do, it's a combination of everything from your own family, your community, and other people that supports you. And then really when you grow, you say, I got to get more money. Where do I go? That's what we're trying to figure that out. The rest, other people, the immigrants can do it themselves. The part where you need additional funding, an infusion of a good amount of money, whether it's a million dollar, five million, or even 500,000, we hope that 
they will be able to access that kind of funding opportunity through the work they do. By also what we do, we amplify their work and hopefully they get something. We have never promised anything, but we do know that people have benefited from the ecosystem. That's interesting. That little crossing the chasm part is the part that they're having the most trouble getting the money when that's most people say is actually the hardest part as well for your startup. So Forex is a problem, I guess, or the difficulty that that's wow. Yeah. Carrying on, you'd mentioned remittances in that. Can you talk about some of the positives and negatives of remittances? And can you share just a little bit more detail about that in general? So remittances is what really keeps many African families, and I'll speak only about Africa, but remittances is huge. You know, Mexico, the Philippines, get the largest amount of their money, their income comes from remittances. So does Africa. I was giving a speech yesterday at 1.20 or 1.30 a.m. our time to the Global Compact on Migration. This is a UN program that is addressing the migration issue. And I'm glad to shout out for them because it's a framework. It's not a policy. It's a framework. But it's a framework for countries to protect and support immigrants also at its core to keep them dignified as they should, because the dignity of immigrants and migrants, as we see it from time to time, most of the time in the United States, it comes out really as a negative story, but it's a beautiful story. So the beauty comes in what I'm about to tell you. The remittances works for Africa. For example, in 2020, which we were afraid that it would go down, Actually, remittances was about $42 billion to the continent. Prior to that, if I'm not mistaken, in 2019, it was 39 point something billion dollars. What this tells you is that Africans from the diaspora continue to give back to their community as they see fit to their family, to their friends, which is fantastic. It's very needed and it needs to stay uh, at that. To your question, What is the good and the bad of remittance? The good of the remittances is it solves immediate problem for families. So you're not going to stay still when your mom asks you for money or your brother asks you for money or your father. You you would do whatever it takes to make sure that you send the money. The question I think is, or the challenge is remittances are not scalable because they're going to families. From me to my family, nothing is happening. What we are talking about is How do we scale remittances? Can we take a portion of that money or a portion of the diaspora saving to use that for investment? There are many different discussions happening about this through the Africa Union and many other entities are addressing this issue. Individuals are doing the same thing. But I think we do need, in order for this to become a real true investment opportunity, it's based on trust. So we need to have a trusted platform where dance ones can feel very comfortable that if I, as an Eritrean, want to invest in money that will go to support people in Ghana, why not? I want to be a part of it. I just want to know whether the platform to which I'm investing is reliable and trustworthy enough that I know the money is going to build houses for the low income, provide food to those in need, or other things that are required. Make sure that student, uh, kids are educated. That's what I want to see change happen. And I look forward to spending the rest of my life working for that at some point. That's really what I'm interested in. Speaking of working with governments, what governments or countries in Africa right now are really encouraging economic growth in the startup ecosystem? It has its own challenges. When you're working with different governments, you have to adhere to their different policies. 
but they're doing quite well in the best way that I know they can do. The same thing in Ghana. Ghana is a, has a very supportive government, not only to their community, still have challenges, don't get me wrong, but at least they have that opportunity to provide the supportive ecosystem to their entrepreneurs. Plus, also, there is tremendous interest in diaspora investment. So there is that added value and added opportunity. Kenya, Ethiopia has its own challenges, but yes, they, they are trying to create diaspora returns to be able to create businesses in the country. South Africa has always been had a very robust systems available. But think of it, Sean, in the way right now, the way in which we need to talk about it is in terms of COVID. So if you want to be shocked, I think I need to say this, and I hope that everyone who's listening to your podcast understands what's happening. The world cannot be free of COVID until everyone is vaccinated. Unfortunately, you can see the inequity by what we're going through in the United States. In the U.S., people are being given reward or an award in order for them to get vaccinated. And I'm lucky, and I'm, we're lucky to see that more than 62 or 63 percent have actually had a one shot already. In Africa, that's less than one percent. We're talking about a billion people. They don't have the shots. And how is it possible that we will have a global economic development when majority of the population is not vaccinated? So I am trying to say this because COVID has also made it very difficult for some African countries and individuals to really thrive or to do what they were doing. So I think it's very important that we put that also as a context to your question. Interesting. And with that, are there other problems that maybe startups or, or people are facing in Africa that we may not be aware of here in the States? And since this is the Silicon Valley podcast, is there any that you know about that's being solved by technology that maybe you could share a story with us? mobile payment system that really started in Africa. So the whole, we've talked about M-Pesa and others. Well, how did it start? It started in, uh, in Kenya. People use mobile payment as a, a way to ensure that they have their payment on their mobile because it's not always easy to transfer money from one to the other or banking is not also easy. It's not even equitable. So now they're using their mobile phones to do their business almost everywhere in many places in parts of Africa, not everywhere, but in most places, that is what they're using. So I think if you talk about technology transformation and the entire disruptive innovation, mobile telephone has transformed not only Africa, but many, many other parts of the world, developing world, because now the mobile phone, you can be in a village where it's hard to reach, but you have your mobile phone that you can make a call, you can actually have access to funding. So that, that, that I think is the most transformative technological innovation that has ever taken place in Africa. I know this because I grew up in a family where we were, my family, my parents were trying to get a landline telephone that took years to get approval. Now they don't have to worry about it because the mobile phones, whether they are up to part with the U.S. style or not. It doesn't matter what model they are, but they have these mobile phones that they can make. They can use them to communicate, to uh, do trade and other opportunities, even to learn, to take lessons on mobile phone. So mobile phones are the most important thing right now in Africa and other parts of the world. That's fantastic. And let's go back to your organization and what you're doing. From my understanding, you're starting to build an accelerator program. Can you kind of tell us about some of the details of it, kind of the overall picture, maybe 
when it's going to start, what's the goals, all the good information that our listeners may really find fascinating. We started the Accelerator program in 2018 with the first cohort from Africa, and we call that the Builders of Africa's Future. That now has about 42 in the pipeline. We identify 10 to 12 grassroots entrepreneurs from Africa. We provide them a very basic training, and we've been doing that with Santa Clara University. And then they come and do a pitch here in the Valley to see if some people are able to give them the funding. As I said, we never promise that they will get funding, but we give them the space to make that pitch and seek funding. And that has been fantastic. And in fact, it was the program, the BAF, or the Builders of Africa's Future, that has informed for us to develop the Accelerating Black Leadership and Entrepreneurship Program, ABLE. This is a new program, primarily and 100% I focused in the U.S. Black entrepreneurs. We're trying to help Black entrepreneurs in the United States get access to training, to mentoring, to funding, and to a long-term cohort building, you know, opportunities where they can have a sounding board, someone that they can talk to, someone that they can go to, which is what we miss as entrepreneurs when you happen to be from a different part of the world or you happen to be a minority within the United States. So that's the essence of ABLE. We launched the program in March of this year with the funding, full funding, seed funding from Silicon Valley Community Foundation and full funding from Bill.com. This is a fintech company based in Silicon Valley. I want to shout out to them because one of the things I mentioned in my conversation was it's the co-creation. It's easier to give money, but it is very hard to give time. The Build.com team is heavily involved in the co-creation of this. Why is this important? Because then you don't see this as a philanthropic effort, rather as a very important and integral to their CSR program to support Black-led organizations in the United States. Very happy about that. And so the, where are we now? <laughs> we already, we opened the application in May 15, and our goal was to get at least 50 applicants. And I'm very happy to say there were 107 applicants for a 20 top 20 position. And they were our uh, program advisory committee, of which three of them are from Build.com team. Very senior officers are part of that uh, nominating committee. And I would encourage your listeners to go to our website to see who these people are. They are uh, trying to get the top 20 selected and we will announce them in August. And I hope that, Sean, you will do the best you can also to shout out for them. Because at the end of the day, this is not about the African Diaspora Network alone or you and I. This is actually really about the 20 people that we're going to amplify their work, get them to be known in our community, and hopefully that they will get access to funding. It's a six-month program in partnership with the Levy School of Business Silicon Valley Executive Center team. And Dennis, a wonderful friend of mine who is going to lead that program. I'm very excited. I'm going to also shout out to them because they started the Black Corporate Readiness Program, of which I am a program advisory committee member. We're really seeing an uptick into the support ecosystem for Black entrepreneurs and to bring them to become part of the board membership around the United States in a very, very intentional way. And I'm very excited about that. Hopefully this answers some of your questions. Well, actually, once again, just like everything else, it just leads me for more questions. So, okay, good, good. 
let's go back. I'm really curious. How were you able to grab such an amazing board? How were you able to recruit for this when it was just an idea? I, as I said at the beginning, I bet in each other. I believe in people. I really do. I think at the core, we want to make a difference. At the core, we want to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And I'm very grateful for the people in my circle. So this, I think, Sean, if you are not in our newsletter, I'll make sure that you get it. Next week, we're going to really amplify our leadership. Why? Because people ask me, how do you do it? Just like what you're asking me. I think I'm just one person who does not sit still and I wanted to see change happen. And so if I reach out to you, Sean, and I think there is a chance you will say yes to me if I ask you for something, but it's not because I'm asking you. I think it's because the issue that I'm asking you about is something that you care. So I think what I'm, what I'm saying is I am very grateful for the people who said yes. Even your interview is all about that. How do we say yes to opportunities? How do we say yes? Or how do we give, how do we trust each other at face value so that we don't become so skeptical that we forget really we're talking about human beings? So I think if we, if we demystify this thing and we don't take it too personal and we don't want to make it about ourselves, I have to tell you, I, to your question, I just am very grateful to the people who said yes. And then I have to follow up with something we talked about earlier. When you've talked to some possible investors in that for this accelerator, what has their feedback been? Has it been, thank God someone's finally doing it. We want to invest. Has, have they had some questions, some concerns? Kind of what have those initial questions have, or conversations have been like? First investment or funding that came to ADN was from Silicon Valley Community Foundation and then from Bill.com. And now we're raising additional funding to help the organization to do the work and also to make sure that Santa Clara University is getting paid to do the training. So there's all kinds of things that we do. But what to your question, when is this going to happen? We're already getting a lot of hooray for what we're doing, and which is great. We, we like that. But we do need to raise money for the entrepreneurs, which is going to come once we amplify them, once we recognize them, once we identify them, then we are going to amplify them. I want to shout out, I hope he doesn't mind, but Rene, the CEO, Ricard Rene, the CEO of uh, Bill.com and his family have already contributed a seed funding, plus the, or the company itself, a seed funding to support the 20 able cohort. That's just a seed funding, but we have to go out and leverage the money that we've received to go and see if we can get additional funding from venture capitalists and others to give them something after they finish. We want to really give them a financial award because you know that if you are a Black entrepreneur, a minority, one of the things that's going to happen is you would not be able to be able to afford that much of time. Six months out of your work is a very long time to ask. And so we're trying to come up with some kind of an award to give to the entrepreneurs. So to your question, that test is going to happen between the months of September and February of 2020, September 2021 and February 2022. Why do I say February 2022? Because that's when the graduation and the pitch day is for the accelerator participant for the 20, where we will bring with the help of all of you, you and others in our ecosystem to be at the room. This is going to be in person, God willing, at Santa Clara University and then at another uh, venue in the afternoon a reception and a pitch session at, we're hoping that we will host it at uh, build.com because I think they really saw this from early on, what we could do, what was possible and to celebrate this opportunity together. Well, I'm sure once they hear this interview and that you said that out loud, 
the audience think they're kind of roped in now. I don't think. I'm sorry, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what the, can I say? With that, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, your organization, anyone we talked about, anything, what's the best way to go about doing it? Oh, they can reach out to us through the website, the African Diaspora Network.org. And then they can send email to info at African Diaspora Network.org. And we will be happy to follow up. We'll follow up. We'll reach out to them back. They can also reach out to me to Almaz and African Diaspora Network. Fantastic. We're going to have all that information in the show notes. Almaz, I want to thank you for being an amazing guest today on the Silicon Valley podcast. For our listeners out there, I am going to do a shameless plug for myself. If any of you are a company looking or in the mid-market, I am at Global Capital Markets. I'm a principal there. Please reach out to sf at globalcapitalmarkets.com. That's my email for more information on how I can help you. With that, let's continue with the show by just saying, Almas, I want to thank you again for being an amazing guest on today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you. Sean, thank you so much for what you do and really for amplifying the work of those who need to be amplified. Thank you so much. I can't wait to get one of the people from your cohort on the show. Just throwing that out there right now. You will, you will. Thank you so much. You're going to love them. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.